Hi TJs, it's John here. Uh, it's a Friday afternoon, day two of lockdown two. Hope you are all okay. Uh, the weather where I am is very nice. I hope it is where you are too. It's easing us through the week and I hope that's been good for you too. Uh, recently I talked to Max Dickens. He is the author of a new book called Improvise, Use the Secrets of Improv to Achieve Extraordinary Results at Work. Uh, he's also the director of Hoopla, the UK's first improvisation training school and London's first dedicated improv comedy theatre. Uh, we talked about all sorts of stand-up and improv-related things and how that can help you in business. Fear of failure, creativity, the importance of play as an adult. They're all on the table. It was a really good conversation. It's a topic which I think a lot of people... Uh, find a little bit frightening improvisation um, certainly I do uh, but it's brilliant hearing uh, someone so proficient at it uh, break it down about why it's so good and how it can help you uh, so I do hope you enjoy this one let's start with your new book improvise tell us about that yeah so my book improvise how the secrets of improv uh, can help you achieve extraordinary results at work are all about um, taking ideas, concepts, skills, mindsets from the world of stage improvisation and then applying it to real life and applying it to work. So people often think of improv as, as shows like Whose Line Is It Anyway and performance, uh, but I define improv as the art of acting without a script. And while, of course, that often happens on a stage for entertainment and that's a lot of people's immediate association I think we act without scripts in life all the time, and especially at work. So you think you're doing a pitch, you think you're managing a direct report. Any form of communication is improvisational. Collaboration, solving new problems, all these things require us to improvise. So I think this is not a niche skill set. I think it's even, if I be so bold, one of the absolutely core skill sets of anyone in the world of work at the moment. And through my business, which I'm co-director of, called Hoopla Impro, we're Europe's first improv training company, and we've got a comedy club in London Bridge as well. Um, and we teach people how to improvise. And in our in our corporate work, we work with companies all over the world, showing them how to do it too. And what we do is take these concepts, which I'm sure we'll explore, and we apply them for these companies to day-to-day -day challenges. So people might bring us in and say, hey, we need to get our brainstorms much more productive or, hey, um, we need some pitch training or, hey, um, we need to really make sure we get our teamwork on point and we take these concepts and uh, apply them and illustrate them in a series of experiential exercises. So improvisation is experiential learning and we find that is amazingly effective for people. And in the book, I share some of these exercises but also really lay out the, the concepts so people can see how they apply in their everyday life. Uh, very interesting that your comedy club's near London Bridge. That's where TJ's based. Um, I'm uh, I'm in Bristol, but the next time I'm down in the head office, I'll uh, I'll try and pop in. Great. Yeah. It's that, so stand up comedy, uh, let alone improvisation, it's the sort of thing that fills people, the vast majority of people, myself included, with dread. What are your tips to kind of get over fear of failure and particularly embarrassment, so people can unlock their creativity? Fear of failure. It to an extent, uh, is in is entirely natural in that we, we've got this brain that was meant to keep us safe on the savannah thousand years ago to all these physical threats. And it's sort of that fight or flight response 
is actually really useful. But now we're in an environment without those physical threats and we have social threats and that kind of fight or flight response, which is essentially what this fear response is, is often inappropriate and not based in any facts. So a lot of this is about, uh, firstly, uh, understanding that this fear of failure is, is a shame response, a, a social reaction that we've that we've learned and when we're aware of it we can do some things to combat it so the first step is fair is self-awareness and realizing that you are not an unconfident person you are a person who is having unconfident thoughts and that I think is quite an empowering idea because confidence is suddenly not a person an individual it's not an innate quality it's a learning uh, I should say a thinking strategy that we can learn and so improvisers have all sorts of ways of, of thinking about this uh, in terms of performance, but also you asked about creativity. So maybe let's zoom in on that. So if you think about our inner critic, you're faced with a blank page or you're faced with creating anything. Your inner critic, which we all have, is, is going to throw two massive thoughts at you right away. The first one is great ideas are good right away. And we bring in a, our judgment really early in that process. And we think if our ideas aren't great right away, then we're, we're not creative and we're doing a terrible job. Uh, another thought we have is that, hey, I must be original. If I'm not being original, then I'm not being creative. And improvisers have, have two different approaches here. So if you look at the first thought, great ideas are good right away, is is completely untrue in reality if you look at the etymology if you like of any idea think of how many iterations it has how it evolves the input of others and you're going to get blocked up if you try and be brilliant right away so improvisers on stage to free themselves up of this burden to quieten this inevitable inner critic have this idea of let yourself be average now that seems like a real cop-out right like who wants to be average at work anywhere no one but what improvisers find, if they, if they let themselves be average, they'll end up getting this, uh, this effect where um, there's a momentum in their creativity and complexity emerges from very simple beginnings, but we don't let ourselves get into that momentum because we bring in our inner critic far too early. So maybe a related thought here is, is an imp improv philosophy called Yes And. So this is probably what improv is best known for. So yes and is all about accepting ideas and building on them. And you can say yes and to yourself or to others. We'll get on to others in a moment, I'm sure. But you have this idea pop up in yourself. You can either decide to immediately judge it, to bring in that inner critic, or you can accept it and add something and build it and focus longer on divergent and exploration thinking and creating from abundance to come up with a big volume of solutions before we bring in that critic. And we will bring in that critic. But all the research suggests that originality, creativity is linked to how long you sit in that divergent phase, that uncritical phase, coming up with a large volume of potential solutions before you come in and get really critical. Now, I also said the other inner critic big thought is, God, I must be original. And we get this um, from culture. We, we think that artists, and, and they are often, are incredibly original. And so we must be right now. But if you, we find when we train beginner improvisers, they try and say the funniest thing or the cleverest thing they can think of. And they either block themselves by doing that 
well, they end up saying something quite derivative and quite um, quite boring because they're trying too hard. So what we say to them is, hey, what I want you to focus on in this scene, in this class, is be obvious. And again, like let yourself be average, that seems like a real cop-out. Saying obvious things is boring, right? But what is obvious to you won't be obvious to someone else. And obvious is often where your talent lies, where your unique set of experiences and intuitions. And if you let yourself be obvious, you'll find that you become original as a side effect of that. And again, both these approaches, let yourself be average, be obvious, create from abundance and spending longer in that uncritical divergent mode as underlying both those thoughts really help quieten that inner critic and let people be more creative and rediscover that innate creativity that we had as children. So aside from, I mean, we've touched on some of this already, I think, but aside from obvious applications like role play, which is used a lot in business very successfully, how else can improvisation be used in business? For example, can you use uh, improv techniques to help you stay engaged while remote working, for example, which is something that a lot of people are going to find themselves doing, I think, maybe for the foreseeable future. Yeah, sure. So I'll get onto remote working in a moment because I think clearly that's a big challenge for everyone. But how else can improv be, be used in business to go to the first part of your question? I think the biggest thing we can do is focus on these core communication skills. Like I said, communication is improvisational, whether you're doing it on Zoom or whatever. And what we find when we work with businesses and work with business people is that they focus a lot on what they say in the communication. And there's clearly part of it, right, is how how you speak and your content. But there really are different ways to have personal impact. So how you respond to another person or to a moment can give you huge credibility and affects how you connect with them. Um, you can Another form of personal impact is that we say is how you transform them. So you can listen people into insight in coaching conversations. But what are the blockages between these two things, between reacting in the moment and to transforming people by how you show up is listening. And actually, improvisation, the cliche of it, it's all about being clever and funny off the cuff and what you say, but actually it all begins with listening. And a lot of the book focuses on how you can become a really brilliant listener. And in improv, we have a slightly different definition of uh, listening to what people are often taught at work. So at work, we're often taught about active listening. If you think about the sort of things you do in active listening, um, it might be, you know, nodding, making sort of affirmative noises as they speak, uh, smiling, opening up your body language. You could do a lot of these things without genuinely listening to that person. How do you know if someone has really listened to you? It's what they do with what you said. So we define listening as the willingness to be changed. If you're truly listening, ideas will land on you and change your response. So if you're listening to this now and you want to be a better listener, ask yourself, When someone's speaking, are you really listening or are you waiting to respond? Forming a script in your head of what you're going to say next, wrestling the conversation back to where you want it to go, or are you staying really present with that person, listening to the last word they say, letting their words change your response? If you do, you'll really connect and you'll be more adaptive to them and you'll have much stronger effects. So in a sense, how can we get better at work with improv? It comes down to becoming firstly an amazing listener. And we do a lot of work with that in workshops. 
Uh, and these exercises are a really fun way to teach listening because they're engaging exercises. And also you realize the barriers that people come up against with all these things. Um, so to answer the second part of your question now, how can we how can we get better at remote working with improv? Well, the challenge we've got is that we're all staring at the four wall, same four walls all the time now. We can't bounce off people. We used to chat with colleagues, you know, and um, feed off their energy. We used to get different stimulus all the time. So if you're feeling flat, if you're feeling uncreative, it's because you're having to entirely generate the creativity yourself and we can't feed off uh, other people. So what what can we do about this? Well, we we try and talk a lot about play in improv. And the reason why we talk about play is that um, improvisers have learned through experience, because improv is taught in games, that games help people relax their inner critic and that critical inner voice. It distracts the voice. So if you can gamify, if you like, how you're coming up with ideas, not only will you get different sorts of solutions and more lateral solutions, you'll also find your critic and your confidence your critic is more under control and your confidence goes up just almost through a side door through how you can use um, games. So I'm very happy to share some some games with everyone today that you can you can try um, immediately at home because I think this is, a, you know, let's leave you some tips. Um, one is let yourself be wrong, we call this. So rather, rather than trying to come up with a great solution quickly, we often will do an exercise called turbocharger brainstorm. And this is all about deadlines and setting yourself targets that really force you to, to think outside the box. So say to yourself, when you're working from home, right, I'm going to come up with 50 ideas in five minutes in, in, in answer to this brief. If I'm going to try and solve this problem, 50 ideas in five minutes. What that will do by gamifying that a little bit is it will stop you judging your ideas. Another exercise you can do is ask yourself, well, what's the wrong answer here? And that takes off all pressure to be right. And what you often find is that by thinking about the wrong answer, the right answer comes up. Uh, another one is identity theft. So get into a different mindset of another character, another person. So pick your favorite creative. It can be anyone you want. It can be a film director. It can be a fashion designer. It can be a, a, a creative business person. Ask yourself, if I borrowed their perspective, how would they solve it? Or pick a brand. What's a brand you really admire? Maybe it's Apple. Maybe it's Deliveroo. How would they approach this brief? Um, so there are very simple exercises there that you can use to make your creative process that little bit more creative by making it more playful. And so it's play doesn't have to be childish. Play is about how can we get a better outcome or a better solution by designing our process in a more fun and engaging way. And a lot of that comes from our heritage or my heritage, especially in improvisation. Uh, we'll, we'll come back to play in a minute, but just to, to go back to something you said earlier, from my own experience, I a few years ago, I had sort of several important speaking engagements in uh, a, a few months so I had my best not my best man speech my, my my own groom speech I had a speaking engagement at a football club and then I had and I was doing some stand-up comedy as well so I took uh, speaking lessons I took public speaking lessons wow. and that was one of the first things they said was you you kind of have to get over yourself you have to we're, we're all our, our worst critic you know and um, 
it's definitely interesting to hear you say these things that tally exactly with what the person that was teaching me public speaking was saying that we you just kind of have to let go and be prepared to make mistakes and all that sort of thing yeah I mean that's really interesting and so we often talk about mistakes use the word mistakes there we talk about mistakes a lot in improv if you think about communication so we tie into public speaking people often think that oh I've got to be perfect here your goal is not to be perfect. Your goal is to communicate, and they're very different things. And a lot of people who we regard as good communicators are very rough and ready around the edges. And there's nothing more charismatic than owning your mistakes. So we we try and treat mistakes as gifts uh, in improv, in improv, and almost double down on them and almost make the stumble part of the dance, but use it as a resource. And mistakes can be a great way to connect with an audience. I always remember someone told me a story about Frank Sinatra and that he would deliberately put his tie on wrong before he went out to sing so that when he got on stage, he could go, oh my God, I've put my tie on wrong and go, oh, I'm an idiot and and connect with the audience like that because he was so high status, but he using that almost manufactured error to create relationships. So if you, how you own mistakes as well affects how you impact an audience. And we always say in improv, the audience is with you until you push them away. And how can we push them away? We can push them away in our level of energy and push them away in how we're using our body language. We can push them away in how we handle our moments of error and our mistakes. Are we kind of going in a vortex into that shame response or are we owning it and almost doubling down on it and trying to treat it as a, as a fun thing in itself? Coming on to our last question, we're going to go back to play, I think. So as children, uh, it's something we almost exclusively do, especially, obviously, when you're younger. And the the accepted thinking for most people is that it kind of, this kind of tapers off as you get older, you get, you get fewer chances to do it, you get fewer reasons to do it. But everyone says that it's something that, it's an aspect of your personality or your work life or your home life that that should be carried on for for health for kind of mental health sake or creativity's sake or for productivity's sake have you got any advice about how to kind of generate playfulness as as adults or or the importance of it and how improvisation can help with this i think a big part of it is how we think of what professionalism is and what professional looks like and I see this all the time. I call it business schizophrenia. So I might work with a with a leader or with a group of people and their their backstage self, if you like, is really fun and relaxed and engaging. And then when they go into work mode, their front stage self, if you like, they think they have to be a certain sort of person to be taken seriously. And I think how we how we work in the world of work and how we present ourselves is based in a in a heritage of seriousness that actually we haven't actually prodded or or beaten up too much. Why what are we getting out of this? Now clearly there is a time to be absolutely very serious, but I think we can be a lot more relaxed and a lot more playful in how we approach all sorts of things. And a lot of it is how we frame it. So firstly, if you want to connect with an audience, if you, if you present your personality authentically and you're playful, you're going to connect with them better. So you're going to get a better result. You're going to get better impact. And shouldn't professionalism be about impact, not about how, what your inverted commas meant to do? 
And then another way of thinking about play is, and we touched on it earlier, but you're in a room with people or you're managing a team and you want to get an innovative solution, an innovative output or a culture that is more likely to make those ideas emerge. And that culture, what I think we can intuitively attach to is likely to be a playful culture. It's a, a culture where people are going to be unafraid to pitch and share ideas, where they're going to take risks, where they're going to take slightly unusual approaches to solving problems. We all want to work in places like that and we get better outcomes. So a lot of it is how we label it, how you present play. Play is not people wasting money playing ping pong. That isn't, that, that you know, one understanding of play. But play at work is well, how can we be and show up here and organize our time so we can get more creativity out of all of us? And if you explain it like that, I think people get on board with it and business people can start to see more of a return. So we've talked about how you can get more play into your life. I mean, one thing if you're a manager, for example, is how you set up the space, how you're managing your group of people. Is it an emotional culture where people fear failure or is it one where we call it a yes and culture, where ideas are heard and accepted and built on and, and judgment is delayed? You set in that kind of emotional culture. And if you're an individual, how can you get more play into your life? And a lot of it is about breaking habits. And we talked about that habit of how we think about work and how we think about what professionalism means just then. But we have all sorts of other habits at work. So I just want to leave some practical things that people can do. And I expand on these a lot more in the book. But one is just trying something different. So that's a real simple thing everyone can do to get more spontaneity into their life, whether it be walking to work a different way, listening to a totally different podcast, although always listen to this one, obviously, whether it be reading a totally different book, trying a completely different recipe, talking to a different sort of person, try something different, a very simple, practical way to get more playful. Other one is to set totally new goals. So our brain is an amazing thing. And if you are always pursuing the same goals, you're not going to get very spontaneous new solutions out of that. So what could you do to set a completely different goal? People often talk about moonshot goals, right? So what if rather than improving revenue by 10% this year, we had to improve it by 500%? What sort of ideas would that throw up? Again, it's, it's almost a thought experiment, that sort of outcome. Again, a playful response. So set different sorts of goals, set ridiculously ambitious goals as a thought experiment. Another thing you can do is ask yourself different questions. So again, we get stuck in habits of thought when we're always answering and asking ourselves the same questions. So I wanted to leave with another practical tip, that a thing that someone could do right now, and I use this technique all the time, it's called question storming. So what you can do is break down the problem you're trying to solve into a series of questions. And if you want to do this with a team, ask them, I want everyone to come up with 10 questions on this. How can we break up this, this topic? So um, once you've broken it down and come up with not solutions, but say 30 different questions on this problem, what you'll find is each question opens up your thinking in a different way and you're going to get more uh, spontaneous, innovative responses from that. So those are three practical things you can do. Um, Set yourself new goals, uh, try something different and, and this question storming idea. And 
like I say, the reason why I wanted to introduce sp- specifics here is play doesn't have to be abstract. It doesn't have to be making pasta drawings or paintings like we did at school. It can be super practical and play is about breaking yourself out of habits of thought. And there are very specific and non-woo-woo ways we can do that. Well, Max, thanks ever so much for your time. And uh, good luck with Improvise. It's all it's available now from all good and evil book stores. <laughs> Hopefully I'll get to your comedy club when I'm in London next. Uh, aside from that, yeah, thanks very much for your time. My pleasure. And if anyone wants to find out more, the book's called Improvise. Use the six of improv to achieve extraordinary results at work. You can find me on LinkedIn. My name's Max Dickens and also Hoopla, H-O-O-P-L-A, impro.com is where we're at if you fancy taking a class or fancy uh, seeing what we might be able to help you with.